happened. Would you all turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 9, and we'll read verse 57 through 62 together. Luke 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you today, to be able to gather together, to um, read your word together, to pray to you, to sing praises to you, to lay before you the concerns of our heart, and now, O oh God, to hear you speak through preaching. We pray that you'll overcome my failings and my weaknesses, and that you, through the power of your word, empowered by your spirit, will impact our lives and change us. We pray for our children and children's worship. Lord, please teach them to abandon themselves to you, that they may indeed put their trust in you even this day. And now we commit our time to you, and we commit ourselves, O God, to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. So our theme for 2022, the preaching theme, as you know, I try to come up with a different theme each year, uh, but for 2022, the theme is to follow Jesus. Um, the reason for that is not unlike last year's theme, which was, was heading home, and we focused on heaven because it's so easy to get distracted from heaven. It's also easy to get distracted from following Jesus, isn't it? It can become a, a real challenge. It's so easy to get caught up in the religion of Christianity and miss the person of Christianity. And, and it's not just us. I, I believe that you, you see that in the Old Testament church. I think it's a primary message of uh, the, the prophets, uh, both the, the minor prophets and the major prophets. You really begin to read them. What do you see? Is you see that they were continually rebuked because they, were, they had a religion without God. And it was a, a tremendous uh, challenge for the people there. Well, it's a challenge for us too. And the temptation is just as great for us. And so I wanted to take time this year to just focus on following Jesus and, and what that means. And so we started out and we looked at uh, the command to the church when Jesus left, which is to make disciples. And so we considered the Great Commission and we said, well, disciple is someone who's following Jesus, right? So that's what we're supposed to be doing. Well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And so I began to go through various of uh, the, the follow me passages where Jesus says to, to follow him, and then we did First Peter last week where Peter tells us that we're supposed to follow him, but uh, nonetheless, and, and trying to understand the, the various ways in which uh, that, that command is lived out and what it means in our lives. And uh, this was to be the, the last uh, message in the follow me passages, but I found out that uh, Sammy Fukushan is going to be preaching next week, and he sent me the passage he's going to preach, and he's actually going to preach the parallel passage that we're looking at today from Mark. And at first I thought, oh, I need to change what I'm preaching. Then I thought more about it. I thought, actually, that's really good. 
that we'll get two different perspectives to be able to really spend some time on this key passage that deals with following Jesus. So anyway, next week will be the last of the follow me passages and, uh, and uh, Sammy doesn't even know that that's what he's going to be doing. But uh, we'll let him know, I imagine. I'm sorry, I've had a tickle all morning. So uh, we'll, we'll see if I can uh, get through this without too many uh, coughing. What we're going to start uh, then the, the following week, the end of this month, the last two Sundays of, of March, we're going to be looking at John chapter 15, uh, the first five verses where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And, and looking at that, that vital relationship that we have with him that enables us to bear fruit. So uh, following that, uh, we're going to start uh, focusing on Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that is written to Jews who were in the New Testament. So they're part of the Old Testament church, and then the, 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 the covenant, the administration of the covenant changed. And now we go into the, the new administration of the covenant of grace. And, and instead of being the, the, the covenant where they're offering sacrifices, they're in the part of the covenant where the sacrifices have already been offered. And, and that was a, a difficult time for them. And so Hebrews was written to these Jews to say, you need to understand Jesus is greater than all of that, so you need to follow Jesus. And so that's why we're going to spend the rest of this year and probably some of next year uh, looking at uh, the book of Hebrews. So that's kind of our, our plan. But here we come today to this, this passage in which we, we have recorded for us three interactions that Jesus has with individuals um, about the idea of following him. And, and they're, they're listed together to bring to us a single idea. And as you think about what each one is, the first one, a man comes up to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus points out to him, uh, I don't even have a place to lay my head. The second one, Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. And he says, well, let me uh, bury my father. And Jesus has to tell him, let the dead bury their dead, which is weird, right? But nonetheless, Jesus tells him that. And the third one is another individual who says, I'll follow you, but let me say goodbye. And Jesus said, uh, don't look back. As I think about these three individuals and, I, and Jesus' interaction with them, there seems to be a common point to me that I think Jesus is, is reminding them. I think that each of them were facing the possibility of losing focus, right? Each one was getting a little bit distracted. And so Jesus speaks into their lives to help them be focused. And so as we look at this, we can learn that we too, if we're going to follow Jesus... We need to be focused. How do we do that? Well, to do that, first of all, I think we need to ignore the distractions. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Wherever you go, he says, no restrictions, right? Not just I'll follow you, I'll follow you wherever, Lord, now, the parallel passage of this, Matthew chapter 8, <clears throat> shows us a little bit about what was taking place right before this happens. And I think it helps us to begin to maybe get a, a sense of what was taking place. Right before this was uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has, has gone up on the mountain and begins to address the crowd. And he addresses them and, and tells them great things. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, right? Wonderful messages. Tells them, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven. And so all of these great lessons and, and, and instructions he's given. And then following that, and um, remember what the, the response of, this, of the, the people who are listening was. 
He says, this man doesn't teach us like the scribes and Pharisees, but he's teaching us with authority. I mean, he's telling us this is what God has to say. And so it's a pretty powerful time. Then he comes off the mountain, and he begins to do miracles of healings and, and uh, uh, casting out demons. And so there's these expressions of power. I think that's important, because think about what this man was seeing. He sees all the crowds gathered around Jesus. He sees Jesus eloquently uh, giving them truth and powerfully teaching them. And then he steps down and then he's, he's healing someone and he's casting out a demon and all this power and all this movement. And there's this, this power in this movement of what's going on. And this man who's coming up is saying, I'm in. I'm all in. I mean, this is everything. I'm, I'm, I'm just with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus looks at him and says, you realize... I don't even have a place to put my head. He tells him, don't assume that all of this happy-go-lucky stuff that we're experiencing right now is what we're going to keep on seeing. No, it's going to get hard. Hardship is the way that I go. And so he warns him about that because hardship can distract us from following Jesus, can't it? I mean, doesn't Jesus tell a, a parable and then that one of the points of the parable of the soils? That the, the, the sower throws out the... the um, seed onto some of the rocky ground and, and it springs up but it has no root and so when the, the sun hits it when hardships come they fade away and so he's letting this guy know there are going to be hardships there's going to be difficulties so how do we ignore those types of distractions well, I think to do that we have to remember what we truly need he talks about the, uh, the, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests in other words, they've got places to dwell. But the Son of Man has nowhere to even lay his head. The Son of Man has no bed, has no pillow. When we think about necessities, setting up a home, isn't a bed kind of one of the first things we look at? I mean, you get an a, a, a individual gets out of college and they begin to get their own apartment, and as they go into that apartment, uh, one of the first things they want to get is a place to sleep, Right? I mean, I know for me, what I got was a couch, but it was because it was a, a sleeper sofa and I could sleep on the couch. And I had just a studio. And so my, my bedroom was my living room. And so that worked, right? But I got to have a place to lay down. I, I'm not going to be able to sleep on the, on, the, on the ground. There's a long story with that. But nonetheless, that, that's not going to work. And, and then even if I am, I've got to have at least a pillow. And Jesus is saying he doesn't have that. None of those things are his. When we talk about things that we need... We talk about that we, we kind of need a car, right? I need a dependable car. And, and we'll use that word. I, I, I need it, right? I need a phone. I mean, I'm up here and, and my phone's down there and I, 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 I have a little separation anxiety, right? I, I, I need to have my phone. That's why I have my watch. It tells me if something happens with my phone. So I'm, I'm ready for that, right? And, and we've got that connection. And we feel like we, we need a phone. We feel like we need a good retirement plan, right? We need good insurance, right? And we think about these things as being necessary, but are they really necessary? Are they really what I need? To think through, what do I need? There's a, a story in Luke chapter 16 that I'm sure you're familiar with, but I want to look at it, and I hope that we'll look at it maybe with fresh eyes today and, and be able to glean a little bit more from it. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's in Luke uh, 16, verse 19. I'm going to read the... Uh, through verse 22. 
Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now when we look at this story, typically we want to focus on what comes next, right? We, we want the rest of the story. Um, but I want to look at the, the beginning of the story because I think it tells us something very significant when we, when we consider what is being told us. There's a, a juxtaposition of these two men. The contrast of their lives is, is incredible, is it not? <clears throat> the one man is wealthy, and he has all the comforts of life. He's got everything he could possibly need, right? The other man, the poor man, has nothing that he could possibly need. Nothing. As a matter of fact, he's not only poor, but he's at the gate and he's got to beg for his sustenance. And that's just completely, uh, almost dehumanizing, right? That he has to do. And in the midst of that, he has sores on his body. And he doesn't even have the dignity of just being able to cover those up, but he's got dogs coming up and licking those sores. Can you imagine a more horrible life that this man, he's got nothing. He's got nothing that he needs. But Jesus wants to draw our attention to what comes next from the standpoint of both of them died and then what? In telling this parable, he tells us something about what is reality. We tend to think about what is here and now, what is physical, what is our experience at this moment as being reality, but Jesus is pointing out that this is not all of reality, that there is more to it. For when they die, what happens to the poor man who had nothing? He's taken up into Abraham's bosom, which is a picture of heaven in which he receives all of the comfort that could ever be his for the rest of eternity. The rich man is buried. The difference is vast. What did they really need? The purple robes did nothing for the rich man. And the sores did not last for the poor man. I think it's important for us to recognize that what we think we need may not be correct. What do I really need? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And if you'll, you'll bear with me, you have heard me exposit this uh, before. And uh, Lord willing, you'll hear me exposit it many, many times again because it is so important for us to remember. Genesis 2, 7 tells us that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. The picture is, when did man become alive? And what was happening? The scripture could have told us that God just made man a living being, right? But there was an event that occurred, and it, he isn't telling this just to give us something of the feel of what's going on. This is a very specific, exact representation of what occurred in that moment. And at the moment in which man became a living being, at the moment became aware of his existence, 
and becoming aware of his existence, he's aware that he's, he's, he wakes up into a sinless world. He wakes up and everything is right, everything is good. And where is the face of God when he comes to that recognition of his own existence? The face of God is right there, breathing into his nostrils, giving him the very life that he now has pulsing through his chest. And he's in that intimate relationship with God. And the one thing he knows is this, this moment, right here, this is good. And this being who has just breathed into me life, this being loves me and accepts me and wants this type of a relationship. God created every human being with that need. Since sin came in, we seek to have it met through people around us. We want to have a face-to-face relationship with our spouse. We want to have a face-to-face relationship with our children. We think that our friends will give us what we need, and we long for it, and yet none of those come in to satisfy our souls. We're left thirsting for even more, because we're created for that face-to-face with God. And it's what we need in the deepest sense of need. If Lazarus had not had that, his end would have been totally different, right? And not only do I need it, more importantly, it's been met. It's not an unmet need. It's a completely, fully satisfied need in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back a chapter to something that that happened after God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. And we see verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God did not create Adam and Eve and then say, Kick back and luxuriate. Did he? No. But he did create them in his image, did he not? And the image that we see about God at that point was one who had, who had created and ruled over all of creation, right? And he's created, they're created in that image. And he gives them that responsibility. He blesses them and he says, Go, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. It's yours. He says to them, I want you to go out and reflect me in this world. I want you to go out and act like you're made in my image. I want you to go out and have dominion over this as I've had dominion over all things. I want you to glorify me. And you can do it. That's something else that each of us needs. Why do men become workaholics? Because we need to be respected and we think that's where we'll find it. But it doesn't satisfy the soul any more than human relationships are capable of doing it. What satisfies our soul is being a man, a woman, or a child who's able to reflect something of the one who has made us. And each of you can do that in a unique way. And so you see, our two needs are to be loved and accepted by God and to be used by Him to bring glory to His name. And they're needs that are not unmet. They're needs that are fully met in Jesus Christ. And as I begin to think about what do I truly need, and I need to remember what I truly need, and remembering what I need, it'll keep me from being distracted, and I can, I can ignore those distractions by realizing I have all that I need right now. It's mine. So that Psalm seventy-three twenty-five is true. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. Not only do I remember what I need to ignore the distractions, but I also want to live like Jesus to ignore the distractions. 
to live like Jesus. No, that doesn't mean that I think we all need to put on robes and walk around in sandals and uh, take funny poses all the time. That, that's, that's not the point. Um, it doesn't mean we need to grow our hair and have a beard. It means something much more significant. In Luke, uh, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we see something of what was at the center of Christ's life. And that is, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What do we see about Jesus when he begins to describe himself and, and what drives him? What is his passion in this life? It's his recognition that he isn't there to be served, but he's there to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Remember, even in the upper room, when Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper, he started out and he realized they'd all gotten together for this meal and no one had washed their feet. And so instead of saying, uh, Bartholomew, this is your gig, Jesus girds himself up and kneels down and washes the feet of all 12 of the disciples, including Judas Iscariot. And then he stands up and he says, I, as your Lord and Master, have washed your feet. You ought to do the same, right? And that's what he begins to, to tell them, that importance of us serving one another, us living like Jesus, and that is living a life of service. And as I live a life of service, instead of living in order to be served, I'm able to avoid the distractions of the world that, that want to tell me that I need to be served. I need to, to find all of these comforts in this life. Isn't it about that? It's about serving others. To the point even Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 tells us, have this attitude in yourself which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was a servant. He wasn't trying to advance himself. He wasn't trying to be, to be respected by other people. He was simply there to serve. Why was he there to serve? Because he wanted to bring men, women, and children to himself and to save their souls. And as I began to serve, recognizing that my desire is to see men, women, and children saved. I want to see men, women, and children trusting in Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? And it becomes to something that becomes a focus of my life. And in making that the focus of my life, you know what happens? I'm able to ignore those distractions. I'm able to keep focused. It's able to drive me in my life. The first step of, of being focused is I've got to ignore the distractions. The second is I need to keep on target. Let's look at verse 59. <clears throat> he said to another, follow me. But he said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Remember that scene from Star Wars, episode 4? Still for me, Star Wars, the first one. Forgive me, I'm old. Uh, but uh, remember that scene at the end when the pilot is, is flying down that little crevice in the Death Star. Great name. Going down the Death Star and he's, he's waiting for his moment and he keeps saying, keep on target, keep on target, right? And right behind him are these TIE fighters that are coming in, firing all around him, everything's exploding around him. And you got, I think, maybe even Darth Vader has come in there and is setting up and he says... Keep on target, keep on target, keep on target. His target was that exhaust chute, right? That's what he's trying to find. He's got to keep on target. And he's risking his life to keep on target. Why would he risk his life to keep on target? Because he knew what was at stake, right? To keep on target because we know what's at stake. We know what the issues are. He knew that lives were on the line and so he was able to risk himself for that. In Matthew chapter 8, uh, we learn that this man... 
who Jesus says, follow me, was already a disciple. He was already a part of the company. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he was one of the disciples that was kind of hanging around with Jesus when following him. He'd already made some level of a commitment. And Jesus comes to him and reminds him of that commitment and says, follow me. Reminds him of what he needs to do because he recognizes that this man was tempted to stray. He knew that the man's father had died. And he knew it would be easy for him to get focused upon what happened when his father died and what needed to be taken care of and to lose sight. We don't know. Um, Some have said, well, his father hadn't died and the man was just really looking for an excuse to get away and go take care of his financial situation. And and I don't know why we would think that. There's nothing in the passage that indicates that. The indication of the passage is his father had died and he needed to go bury him. And it's a very real thing that he needed to go do. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And is reminding him, even as he sends him off and he says, go and preach the gospel wherever you go, he recognizes the man's going to go bury his father, but burying his father's not the point. The point is, go back to where your father's going to be buried, but preach the gospel of the kingdom. Keep on target. In the midst of what you're doing, he's inviting him to that. Do you remember the scene from Pilgrim's Progress? I think it's probably my favorite part of Pilgrim's Progress. Because it, it speaks to the reality of our life maybe more than any other section. And, and Pilgrim's Progress is one of the greatest books that I've ever read as far as just outlining what the, the, the Christian life is all about. But there's a scene in which a Christian, I can't remember if it's faithful or hopeful, are, are, are walking along and uh, things are, it's, it's rough road, okay? It's bumpy, it's just not even, but it's straight. And he was told, you need to walk on the straight path. The path takes you straight to the celestial city. Just keep going. Just straight on that path. Don't go off. Just stay on that path. Stay straight, right? That's what he's supposed to do. Good, good advice. And he's walking along, and it's, it's bumpy, and it's hard, and they're having a difficult time, and they see this, this path that, that goes around this, this hill, and it, it's clearly going to turn right back around. I mean, there's just no other place it can go. It's just going to come right back around, and you kind of look up, and it's probably going to come in right up there. I think I can see where it's going to come in, but man, that's smooth. And the grass is green, and I mean, it's just easy. Um, I mean, it's, it's even clouds here, but it's, it's sunny over there. Everything's better. And so he and his buddy say, well, let's go over there. And they head over there, and they just get around the corner, and then the rain starts to come, and, and uh, everything washes out, and they lose sight of where they are, and there they are, away from where they were supposed to be. And what happens? They're taken captive and taken into Doubting Castle. Because what happens to us when, when we walk astray, when we get off target? We begin to doubt, don't we? We begin to have these worries and these fears, and they're beaten in Doubting Castle. And, you know, for us, when we wander away, who's the one who usually beats us? Ourself, right? We, we, we go about that. But regardless, we go through those hard times because we, we wandered off target. We left it. We need to stay on target. To do that, we have to remember Jesus' call. Jesus starts out and he tells the man, follow me. He reminds him in the very beginning, follow me. That's why our theme for 2022 is follow Jesus. So that because we too can forget and we need to be reminded this is what God would have for us to follow him. Jesus reminded this disciple of this reality. He knew that this man was going to face difficulties. He knew that in going to the funeral of his father and in taking care of of the uh, expenses of the house and all that needed to be taken care of, there was going to be a, a, a pressure on him to quit preaching the gospel as a disciple was supposed to do. And so Jesus told him, Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. 
I want to read to you a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus from the book uh, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, you will probably hear me read from this a lot this year because it is an outstanding treatise on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. Much of what he does is he, he looks at the uh, Sermon on the Mount um, and tries to help us understand that and does uh, the best commentary I've, I've ever read on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> but there's this, this section in which uh, it's entitled Discipleship in the Individual, that I want to read to think about this relationship of the disciple with Jesus. He says, We must face up to the truth that the call of Christ does set up a barrier between man and his natural life. But this barrier is no surly contempt for life, no legalistic piety. It is the life which is life indeed, the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. By virtue of his incarnation, he has come between man and his natural life. You see what he's saying? Because Jesus became a man, he now stands between us and our natural life because he was like us. There can be no turning back for Christ bars the way. By calling us, he has cut us off from all immediacy with the things of this world. He wants to be the center. Through him alone, all things shall come to pass. He stands between us and God, and for that very reason, he stands between us and all other men and things. He is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and reality, which I think is a very key phrase. You see the picture that he's beginning to give us, that Christ, when he became a man, he becomes our mediator our mediator, not, not like he's my, my lawyer, which the, the lawyer stands between the court and the individual, correct? Or stands between two individuals. It's the, the lawyers that become mediators. In that. Is that a fair description uh, to my two judges here? Um, so, so we recognize that, that, that role. But no, no, no. He's a mediator like our skin is a mediator. You see, your skin is a mediator between you and air, right? Your skin is mediator between you and a person. I can't reach out and shake Wyatt's hand. Our skin mediates between us, right? Our skin is always a mediator. And to see Jesus as that mediator who stands between us and everything, that I cannot have a relationship with anything. I can't have a relationship with a pulpit. I can't have a relationship with a book, except that Jesus is between me and that. Thing, me and that person, me and God. So that everything now moves through him. This is what it is to keep that focus, to keep on target, to remember his call, which is to follow him. It's to have that personal connection to Jesus always. I want to ask the question, what is the main thing? Uh friend, Pastor Mark Russler, was the first one who I ever heard say this. I've heard it many, many places elsewhere, and I'm pretty sure Mark isn't the source, but I'm going to credit him because he's the first place I heard it. And the question is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And you've probably heard it. I, I said that in the first service, and several people, oh, I'd never heard that before. So anyway, I'm assuming everybody's heard that before, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I love that. And it's a great reminder to keep on target. But it only works if I know what the main thing is, right? I've got to keep track of that because there are a lot of good things that tell me they're the main thing. There are a lot of good things 
Theology is a good thing, right? Yeah. To have good, sound theology. To be able to have a good understanding of even end times. Now, those of you who know, I, I'm, I'm tempted to be a pan-millennialist when, when, when I talk about my theology, and that's the idea that when it comes to millennium, everything will pan out in the end, right? My, my brother uh, challenged me on that, and I appreciate that for my whole life. So I'm, I'm not a big eschatology guy, but I do have certain convictions. And it's a good thing to have convictions about that. It's good. It really is. It's good to have good convictions about our, our soteriology. Doctrine of salvation, right? It's good to know that. I know the doctrines of grace. And, and it's good to believe them and to hold to them. But should that be the main thing? I'm not convinced that it should be. I'm convinced that it should not be. Sorry. Politics are a good thing, are they not? A very good thing. It's very important. We, we live among people. We have to have a political structure in which we work. And it's very important that we have individuals who are passionate about what they're doing and who are guiding us within our, our, our nation. It's very good. And it's very important that we, as the constituents, are informed as we, we vote upon the various issues and the various individuals. It's very important. It's good. It's a good thing. Morality. Sounds like the strangest thing you'd ever hear coming from a pastor. Morality is a good thing, right? I, I guess it's, I'm kind of required to say that, you'd think, right? But I believe it. It is good that we look at morality and that we take a stand on morality. There are things that are sinful, and we need to declare them to be sinful. Work is a good thing. School is a good thing. Church is a good thing. But none of them are the main thing. The main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Paul says what the main thing is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the main thing. That's what we have to keep as central to all that we do. That's the thing that, that is greater than all of the good things that vie for our attention. All of the good things that can take us off target. We focus on the main thing which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that the Apostle Paul would say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Romans 1.16 The gospel is the very power of God to save souls. That's why it is the main thing. And by remembering the main thing, we can keep on target. So to stay focused, let's go back and review. We have to ignore the distractions, and then we need to keep on target. And finally, we need to maintain a pure heart. Look at verse 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit 
for the kingdom of God. The third man wants to say goodbye. And Jesus addresses in him a divided heart. In realizing he's really looking back, maybe to some extent with regrets for having to follow Jesus. Reminds me a little bit of Lot's wife. He wants to look back. And he's not owning a pure heart that is fully for Jesus Christ. Um, we had a great Rich Mullins song uh, from his final album uh, for the Offertory. Another Rich Mullins song, one of my favorites. Actually, the song that really captured me to be a fan of Rich Mullins was his song, My One Thing. And where he first got my attention is uh, when he describes uh, why he wrote this, it was based on uh, what he said was a Soren Kierkegaard quote. Well, that got my attention. I said, well, any, any musician who's going to be quoting Kierkegaard, I'm kind of liking. And, and that was that uh, the pure heart is, the one, is to will one thing. So he writes this. He says, everybody I know says they need just one thing. And what they really mean is that they need just one thing more. And everybody thinks, seems to think they've got it coming. Well, I know that I don't deserve you. Still, I want to love and serve you more and more. You're my one thing. Save me from those things that might distract me. Please take them away and purify my heart. I don't want to lose the eternal for the things that are passing because what will I have when the world is gone if it isn't for the love that goes on and on with my one thing? You see, that's a pure heart. That's a picture of what it is to have a pure heart that we need to maintain. To maintain that, we're going to have to recognize competing affections. Those, those, those affections that come in our life and seek to, to pull us away from Christ. You see, pure, pure, and we talk about this with purity, pure water is, 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 is water that has nothing but water in it, right? Okay, so vitamin water is not pure water by definition. Pure gold is gold that has no other substance in it, right? A pure heart, then, is one that wills one thing. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are affections that, that come to us and that want our attention, right? And how do I know when, when that's coming into my life? And I think that, that one of the ways that I can recognize competing affections is, what are those moments when I say, God, but... Okay, I think every preacher I know has preached some sermon on but God. Uh, it just happens, and it's right and proper. Uh, I guess what's not right and proper is if we only preach one message on but God, uh, because it's such an important concept. But look at this passage. Look at, look at verse 61. Look at what he says. He goes to Jesus, and he says, I will follow you, Lord. But. He said, Lord, but, didn't he? He said, God, but, not but God. He got his butt in the wrong place. Sorry. <laughs> but at least it's taped. <laughs> his grammar was all wrong. Because what does but mean? But means what came before is superseded by what follows, right? That's just what the word means. 
And so as soon as you say God and you follow with but, you've now said something supersedes God. That's awful, right? So we should never allow that to be... But it is there in our lives, isn't it? It is. This man said, I want to follow you, Lord, but I... Hmm. What if he just said, I want to say goodbye, but I will follow you, Lord? Changes everything, doesn't it? But where are those moments in which you, in your life you say, God, but? Where are those places when you say, God wants me to follow him, but it's hard? Maybe it's the issue of forgiveness. That you know, God, you, you call on me and you empower me to forgive. But what they said, and it's at that moment that that desire for vengeance, that desire for protection by, by not forgiving, begins to supersede God and his call. What if I were to say, those people have wronged me horribly, God but you empower me to forgive. You see, my whole perspective changes. And it sets me free. Because it's a pure heart that's all about God. And I can recognize those competing affections by looking at my grammar. And then I need to name them. I need to name them or I'm not really going to repent of them. I need to name them or I will not change them. Is it named, I want to be liked? I want to be respected? Is it named, I want comfort, financial security, or good health? All of these can be competing affections in our lives. And we need to recognize them and put them away. And then we need to look to the end to look to the end. Asaph struggled. Asaph saw the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering and it tormented his soul. It was so hard for him to see. He felt it was unjust. He could not understand it. And he writes about it in Psalm 73. And in verse 16, he tells us, when I pondered to understand this, that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, it was troublesome in my sight. At another point, he says he was like a, a, a senseless beast. It was troublesome in his sight. But what happened? Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. He looked out and he saw the rich man in his purple robes living in luxury and Lazarus seated at the great gate begging for food with the dogs licking his sores. Not literally that he saw those, but that's, that's the, what he was seeing in essence. And it troubled him. He said, this is wrong. There's no way that this is the way that it ought to be until he saw their end that Lazarus was taken up into the bosom of Abraham and the rich man died and was buried. 
as I look to the end. And I don't want us to find comfort by looking at the end of someone else. What's the end for you? Is it salvation? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? If you have not put your faith in him, I invite you to do that today. But if you have put your trust in Jesus, you are justified. That is, before the great throne of God, you have been declared forgiven and you've been clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. You have been adopted as a son or daughter of Almighty God in which you are given all the rights and the privileges belonging to the Son of God. And you are being sanctified, which is accomplished by the active work of the Holy Spirit inside you right now. And he is working to make you more and more like the Son of God. That is reality. Not only that, but your end also will include a future and a hope. For you will live forever. You will live forever in goodness. I want you to understand that. Right now, we live in the atmosphere of the earth, correct? We can't get outside of it. Everything is within that atmosphere. We share that atmosphere. In heaven, that atmosphere will be goodness. Goodness will surround us as the atmosphere of the earth surrounds us right now. We will live and move and have our being in goodness. I'm pretty sure Twitter won't be there because there's so much meanness on Twitter. And there'll be none of that in heaven. And glory to God I long for that day where we will have just kindness and patience and love and goodness all around us. And in that goodness is God. He's what makes it good. That's your future. That's your hope. And that's real. That's not pie in the sky wishful thinking. That's not some sort of ideology. That is rubber meets the road reality. And we can look to that end and in looking to that end, it purifies our heart. I think it was the last televised interview that he ever gave. Arnold Palmer explained what his biggest mistake was in his career. And he said it happened to the 1961 Masters. Remember that? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't either. I read about it. Um, in the 1961 Masters, Arnold Palmer um, was looking to win three Masters in four years and be a back, the first back-to-back -back winner of the tournament. He's one stroke ahead on the 18th hole. He hits his drive, and it's a beautiful drive right down the center of the fairway. It's, it's, it's money in the bank. Gary Player, who's in second, is already in the clubhouse, has finished. He's good. He's good. So as he's walking up, he sees a friend on the side and he walks up to him. His friend calls him over and they shake hand and his friend says, congratulations on your master's win. This is tremendous. And Palmer shook it and accepted the congratulation. And even as he walked back, he realized, I think that was probably a mistake. And sure enough, he shanked it off into the bunker. He ends up double bogey. And he loses the tournament. And he says, biggest mistake of his career was losing focus. I think there's something to that. To not lose focus. Luke records Jesus' three interactions 
with these three men. And central to all three was was their need to keep focused. And it's recorded for us because he knows we too can lose focus. And so that we not lose focus, we need to ignore the distractions, we need to keep on target, and we need to maintain a pure heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you're great, and we love you so very much. Thank you. Thank you for your love for us, and thank you for giving us your word, and that your word instructs us, and guides us, exhorts us, empowers us. Father, I pray for this congregation. My deep desire is that we would be men, women, and children who are followers of you, and that we'll keep focused. Grant us that grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.